about our year, I guess you might say. Next Wednesday night will be our gospel meeting, and then the following Wednesday night we'll be beginning our summer series. But we want to close out our studies together with one final study on the lottery, or the lotto fever as I called it. And you may say, as I mentioned that, I announced that, well, you know, I just don't understand that. Just not another lesson on lottery. Well, I'll admit that we've said a lot in three weeks. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, speaking at uh, Tidwell Chapel, and Brother Mike filled in, but we've looked at three lessons on the lottery already. But I want us to think about the fact tonight that the uh, fight against gambling is not a new one. You know, we mentioned last Wednesday night that the lottery bill here for this year seems to have died in the in the legislature, and that's a good thing. But the fight is not one that is just of recent times. Let me read you a couple of things that were written a long, long time ago. The first one was written by a man by the name of Tacitus, who is considered to be one of the greatest Roman historians. And Tacitus lived from 56 to 120 A.D. He lived, you know, just past the time of Christ. But here's a famous sentence that he penned Back in uh, those days, he says, By gambling, men are led to fraud, cheating, lying, perjury, theft, and other enormities. And I looked up that word enormities because I didn't know exactly what he meant by that. And that simply means a grave sin or crime. And so, you know, he is uh, crying the, uh, the, the concept, the idea, the, the, the nature of gambling, even back in the first century. Uh, not long after Jesus died on the cross. In uh, about the third century, I guess you would say, Tertullian, who is also known as one of the church fathers, that's what sometimes he is called, some of those guys who were associated with the early church, he is quoted as saying this. He says, if you say that you are a Christian when you are a dice player, you say you are what you are not because you are a partner with the world. And so he... Uh, as well as others, were fighting the battle many, many years ago. And and then a a guy that we don't think of as being a religious person, uh, he had something to say. We know him better as one of the founding fathers of our nation and our first president of the United States, George Washington. We wouldn't think about him having something negative to say about gambling. You know, it's hard for politicians of any stripe today uh, to say anything bad about any kind of, uh, of group or anything that people were saying. But George Washington said, Gambling is the child of avarice, the brother of iniquity, and the father of mischief. And so he didn't speak very highly of gambling. Uh, back in, even in the 1700s, uh, in, uh, you know, after, just after the, uh, the time of our, the founding of our nation. And yet today, it's uh, becoming more and more popular. I won't take time tonight to go over the statistics of, of all of the money, but the billions and billions and billions of dollars, the hundreds of billions of, of dollars that are spent in the United States each year in gambling, we, we covered some of those things. And so tonight, as we think about the lesson that we'll be looking at, I hope that if you're not already convinced uh, that gambling is a sin, that, uh, that uh, you uh, will become, uh, from more study of God's Word, convinced that it is indeed 
of sin. And, and that's not exactly the route that we're going to be taking tonight, although I could pull out a, a number of other passages of Scripture. And, and last Wednesday night, we went at auctioneer speed, almost, going through some of the things that the Bible had to say in order to try to get it into the time. But there is much more that the Bible has to say in regard to the concept of gambling that we have not said. But tonight, I want, I want to think about the church and how the church uh, has a role in matters that, that uh, face our nation. And I want to talk about that for just a few minutes. You know, it's not just this matter, but it's other matters that, uh, that we have that's, that sometimes we as Christians are faced with. And we need to know how to react and what we're to do. And we need to understand that, not just because some preacher said it or some other individual uh, speaks against it. We need to know what God has to say and, and understand how we are to react as Christians, as God's people, in regard to these things. And so that's what we'll, we'll look at tonight in the time that we have allotted together. Uh, I think if we have time, we'll look at about four different thoughts in regard to that. And then, uh, uh, then we'll cease to study this for a while. And maybe if things come back up again at a later date, uh, we'll take a look more at some of the things that the Word of God has to say. Number one, when it comes to gamble, uh, gambling matters, uh, voting on lotteries and doing those kinds of things, as well as perhaps even abortion and, and, and some of the other hot topics of our day, what does the church need to do? Well, number one on our list, let me suggest to you this. The church needs to continue to pray. Now that sounds, that sounds very simple, but the church needs to continue to pray. Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you believe that prayer is effective? Do you believe that? Now if we don't, then we just need to stop. If we don't believe that it's effective, we're just wasting our breath when we speak. But uh, I myself believe that it's effective. We know the Bible says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, it is effective according to what God has to say. He will listen. And I think back at the time of, uh, of Elijah when uh, he called on the rain to stop. And he prayed to God and it stopped. And then uh, three and a half years later he prayed to God again and God allowed it to come back. And there are so many other examples that we could see in, in Scripture, but we need to continue to pray. Let me call your attention to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you have your Bible tonight, look at verses 1 and 2. And, and I think this directly relates to matters like we are talking about tonight. I'm not sure that we always connect them together and put two and two together, but I think that what Paul writes here to Timothy uh, does speak to what we're, what we're addressing tonight as well. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, who has that? Who wants to read that out loud for us tonight? Somebody jump in there and go for it. Therefore, exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Okay? Now, we know that what Paul is doing is he is teaching us to pray, is he not? He, he, he is uh, exhorting us to pray. He's giving us uh, 
the things that, that, that prayer does, if you will, to some degree, and we'll talk about that more in just a second. But let me, let me ask you this. He talks about supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Those are, those are different kinds of prayers, and, and, and we could spend time tonight talking about the difference between those, but uh, I, I don't want to spend our time dealing with that particular part of the verse. What, what I want us to look at is the end of verse number 1 and the beginning of verse number 2 to begin with. Who are we to pray for, number one, first of all? Who, who does... Who does uh, Paul say that we're to pray for at the end of verse number one? All men. Now, who does that include? Well, it includes everybody, but, but he was very specific in some of the people that needed to be included because sometimes it may be that we forget to pray for them. And I can imagine in the day in which Paul lived and Paul wrote this and in praying for the Roman emperor, uh, you know, that would be a hard thing for a Christian to do, uh, especially at that time in the, in the first century, because even though the, the Romans were not as actively persecuting Christians, they, they still had animosity from the old Jewish things that, that had gone on. And, and so uh, it would be hard for them to do. But he specifies in verse number two some that we are to particularly pray for. Now he says, number one, kings, and number two, those who, English Standard says, those who are in high positions. King James says, those who are in authority. And so he says we are to specifically pray for these men, these people, those who are in authority. Now the question is, why are we to pray for them? What is the purpose that Paul says that we are to pray for these men, these leaders, these, we don't have a king, but we have a president, we have governor and so forth. But, but uh, what is the purpose that Paul lays out that we are to pray for them for? Okay, now, now look, at, look at what he's, Paul says here. He says that so that or that we may, we, we, who's we? Christians, the ones that Paul, you know, is uh, dealing with about prayer, talking to about prayer. He says that we may lead a peaceful life, number one. What does he mean by leading a peaceful life? And, and how, how, does that, how does that relate to the leaders that we might lead a peaceful life? Okay, uh, and, and you know, back in that day, they did have some fear of uh, of persecution. First, in particular, from the Jews. Do you remember upon one occasion, at least, we're told that the disciples had gathered together in the upper room. Uh, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, but they are gathered together, and and the Bible specifically states that the door was shut or the door was locked because they were. Fearful, they were afraid of the Jews. And Jesus, on that occasion, he enters the room without ever opening the door. Uh, we look at that part and we think about the miraculous part of that, but he's able to pass through. You know, it, it, there's no peace in being, being uh, chased in, in order to be a Christian. And so, you know, that's, that's one aspect of it. And then he says, not only are we to pray for that we might lead a peaceful life, but 
He also goes on and says a quiet life. You know, we, we ourselves don't need to have to be protesting, doing all of the things that sometimes uh, we see on television. But number three is, is really where I wanted to focus. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And then the third thing, the third reason that he gives is what? In godliness, or uh, as the English Standard Version say, says, a godly life. A godly life. You know what? We're living in a day that's becoming more and more like the old 1st century and 2nd century Roman Empire, in which homosexuality and, and, and all of these other things have become rampant, and, and that which is good and that which is right is looked down upon, and it's criticized, and, and, and people uh, become intolerant of it. And you know what? Sometimes they will even try to force things upon you that godly people don't do. Okay? And we're seeing that in our own nation. We're seeing that. You know, our, one of the things that our legislature has been dealing with this time in, in its session is is doing away with marriage licenses. And, and what's the reasoning behind that? Why, why have they even thought about doing away with marriage licenses? Well, the, the reason for that is because the United States Supreme Court said that you had to issue a marriage license. If you issue marriage license in your state, you have to issue it to same-sex couples. And if you remember, when that ruling came down, there were some, in particular one, I think, in lady in Kentucky, and even, even the, uh, Roy Moore, who was the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, you know, whether you like him or whether you don't, he was, he was sort of standing on the side of, of right by saying, hey, you don't have to do that. But, you know, when people are forced to do that, which is uh, ungodly, uh, we have a problem. And so how do we counter that? How, how is it that, that we try to head that off? Even in matters such as the lottery and, and abortion, how is, it that we, how is it that we help to counter that? Well, number one, we pray about it. We can't control. We can have a, a part in it. And again, we'll mention that in just a minute. We can have a part in it. But... Uh, uh, we, we're, we're not the one who is in control. Who is ultimately in control? Who put the government into its place? And who can remove leaders? Did God ever remove a leader in the Old Testament? Absolutely he did. And so we need to continue to pray. Number two, we need to exhort E-X-H-O-R-T. We need to exhort. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says what? But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. What does it mean to exhort someone? What does that mean? What's, what's Paul, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, we don't know that it was Paul, probably wasn't him. To encourage, to, to, uh, to some degree, you know, to put peer pressure upon. 
You know, sometimes we think about peer pressure and we think about it being a bad thing, but peer pressure can be a good thing. We're encouraging someone, uh, in this case, to do what is right. And I want you again to look at that verse very closely. We're to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, for what purpose? What's the writer say? Why do we encourage? Why do we exhort one another? To keep us from hardening our heart by what? Don't just, don't, yes, that's, that's good, that's right, we don't want to have a hard heart, but what's causing it here? He, I mean, he's very specific, not just sin, the deceitfulness of sin. You know, I can look at it and I can say, I can, I can reason in my mind, you know, that's not really all that bad. You know, it, it really can't be all that bad. In the case of gambling, one of the things we talked about, it can't be bad if you're giving the money to the children to help them in their education, those kind of things. It can't be bad if you're doing that. And you know what? We're being, we're being uh, deceived by the deceit that is put out there by sin itself. And so we are to try to encourage one another. What do we need to do if, if we see brothers or sisters who, who are involved in, in a sin? And, and tonight, as we're talking about it, in, in regard to gambling and some of these other things, what would we need to do? Well, of course, as the writer says here, we need to exhort them to reconsider their, their uh, dance with the devil, if you will. Uh, because that's exactly what seems to be happening. You know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, might even have been last week, I don't remember, but the addictiveness, the addictive nature of uh, gambling and, and so forth. The odds are very good that, that you'll become one of the, the one in ten if you continue to be deceived into thinking that it's not something that, that is wrong or sinful. And not only that, we're putting souls in danger. Not just our own, but we're putting others in danger. And so we have to be careful. Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We have a responsibility, don't we? Now, let's take a moment before we leave this point. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. And we'll do a pretty good bit of reading here. We'll begin in verse number 2 and go through verse number 9. And I think this, this uh, principle uh, carries over all the way into the New Testament. It's a principle that God lays out here. Okay, so somebody begin reading in Ezekiel 33, verse 2. We'll go down through verse number 9. Ezekiel 33, 2 through 9. Anybody have it? Anybody? Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword of the land and the people of the land to make a man among them and make them their watchmen, you see the sword coming upon the land and blow one who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. All right, stop right there for just a second. 
What are we talking about? You've got an army coming, the sword is coming, you've got an army coming, and so what have you appointed? A watchman. What's a watchman? A guard, somebody who's watching things. Uh, he's, his, his job is supposed to be to make sure they're not coming. But if they are coming, what's he supposed to do? Take a nap? He's supposed to sound the warning. Now, if he sees them coming, and what Tommy just read, and he doesn't sound the warning, what happens? Now, the Bible says it this way, his blood shall be, what's that, what does that mean? That dude is about to be executed. That's what's going to happen to him, okay? But if he does sound the warning and you don't listen, okay? Now, now, now that, that's, that's simple guarding the town, kind of thing, isn't it? So, so God uses that illustration to set up something else. What is it that God uses that illustration to set up? Okay, Tommy, keep reading. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away and is iniquity, but his blood now, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word in my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. If you do not think the one who comes to what the wicked person shall die is iniquity, but the blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, he does not turn from his way. That person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered yourself. All right. God said, he said, I won't, I won't give you an illustration. You're guarding the city. You're guarding the, uh, the village. You're guarding the, the gates. And, and you appoint someone to watch for the, for the army, and, and he either does or doesn't sound the, the alarm. And if he doesn't, he's to be held responsible. If he does and you don't listen, then you're responsible. If he does and you do listen, what do you do? You save yourself, okay? You've got, you've got hope there. But he said, that's not really what I'm talking about. He, he said, I'm just giving you that illustration so you'll understand this. He tells Ezekiel, says, you are the watchman. And the words that I tell you, the words that I speak to you, my word, this is God speaking. If you don't tell the folks what I said about it, and I, I'm paraphrasing here. If you don't tell the folks what I said about it, What's going to happen? Well, the people are going to do what? They're going to lose their soul. Is it going to be bad for them? Yes. But if you don't tell them, who is he going to hold responsible? The watchman. Okay? Do you begin to see the point? If we know that these actions are wrong and we don't sound the warning... Who's responsible? That's what I'm saying. We must exhort one another, but we must exhort others, teach others around us as well. You know, I don't want to stand before God on the day of judgment and God say to me, why did you not tell them? I want to have a backbone big enough to stand up and say things that are, that are hard to say. 
and, and that people sometimes don't want to hear. But I want to I be able to do that in a loving manner. And I want to hear God say, you did good. You tried. They didn't listen, maybe. Or maybe they did. But either way, welcome home. That's what I want to hear Him say. And so if we don't take these kinds of things seriously, then, then we'll, we'll lose a battle. Okay? Number three. Not only do we need to pray and exhort one another or exhort, but we also need to reach out. We also need to reach out. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this. What does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16? You don't even have to turn there. You know what it says. We are salt and we are light. We're salt and we're light. What do you do with salt? Well, you don't put it up and don't use it. In spite of what some of the doctors say, you know, don't, don't get too much sodium. You don't put it up and not use it. If you don't use it, what happens to it? Now, we need to remember our salt is different than the salt that they're talking about there. We, we've got this refined sodium uh, chloride, is it not? And, and they had basically sea salt. It was mixed with a lot of other things that, that would lose its effectiveness. Okay? Uh, so, but, but if we don't use it, we're going to lose it. It's good for nothing. We talked about this not too awfully long ago in my Sunday morning class. Uh, in one of the other passages where this is talked about, uh, God talks about how that the salt is not even good for the ground. It's not even good for the earth. Uh, in other words, uh, he's talking about the fertilizer use of salt. We, we sometimes think, well, if you pour salt on grass, it's going to die. But the kind of salt we have is a little bit different than the kind of salt they were using. They were using it as fertilizer as well. Uh, you say, uh, well, well I, I just don't understand, you know, how, how would you put it on grass? Well, if you put too much ammonia around your corn, what's it going to do? Same thing that salt, ammonia nitrate, uh, the same thing that salt will do, it'll burn it up. But if you put the right amount on it, what happens? You get some pretty corn, okay? But, but the idea is that we're the salt, and, and, and we don't stay in the shaker. And we're the light, and we're not put under some kind of, uh, of shade that keeps us from going. What is that? As the salt and as the light, we're reaching out. So there are people, there are people out there who would listen if we re reached out to them uh, on, on just about any matter uh, concerning God and godliness. Uh, there are some out there that if we reach out to them, they'll listen. But they'll also... Uh, if we learn of people who have been destroying their own lives. Uh, that's more where I wanted to go with this. With a practice like gambling and things of that nature, or drugs or alcohol or any of those things, what should we do for them? We need to reach out to them. We need to try to help them turn their life around. You know, I never want to be like the Pharisee that we read about in the book of Luke, chapter 18. Do you? Do you remember who I'm talking about? Do you remember the Pharisee that was standing there praying? And do you remember what he said? And I'm going to paraphrase this. God, look at me and how good I am. And, and man, if you had a hundred like me, there would be... Now, this is 
This is paraphrasing, okay? If you had a hundred like me, oh man, how, how good the world would be. What, what good we could do. But I want you to look at old Joe over there. He's a sinner. And I, I just don't know about him. Don't we look at folks like that sometimes? He's a sinner and I just don't know about him. And we fail. We fail to reach out. We need to be careful. When people are, are doing things that are wrong, yes, we need to warn them, but if they're doing things wrong and they're suffering because of it, we don't snicker and laugh and say they're getting what they deserve. As God's people, we try to help them turn their life around. And so that's, that's what, we, what we as Christians need to be doing. Okay? Some won't listen. I understand that. But then again, some will. And so we're, we're not the one left to choose. And then one last thing, because we're running out of time tonight. As Christians, if and when the time comes, we need to vote. And I'm not talking about just voting necessarily on, on whether you have a lottery or you don't have one, but when an election comes around, I believe we as Christians have an obligation to vote. I've already mentioned this earlier in the lesson, but who, who established the civil government? Who did that? Who established the civil government? I'll say it out loud. God did. How do I know that? I just thunk it up, and I understand that word is not necessarily a word, but it made you remember or think about it. Mike said through the Bible, good job, where at? Romans 13, beginning in verse number 1. I'm not putting Mike on the spot tonight because I knew he knew where it was at. Romans chapter 13. And when you turn to Romans chapter 13, Paul begins by saying, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And here's his next sentence. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, that's how we know it. And when Paul wrote that, those words, uh, who was the governing authority? Who was the ruler of basically the world, the known world at that time? Who was the ruler? Rome was, but who in particular in Rome? Nero. Now, uh, Nero was a crazy one. Nero was a violent one. Nero, when he persecuted Christians, he did it, he, he did it upright. Okay, he'd tie, have them tied into uh, into animal skins and and hung up, uh, dipped in oil and hung up, and light the streets with the Christians alive, you know, burn them alive. And yet God said, "You're still to be subject to the ruling authorities." Now we under we we should understand that. Uh, in Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22. Uh, the Jews were trying to, to tangle up Jesus in his words, the Bible says. They asked him about taxes, and, and what did Jesus say? He said, give me a coin. He said, whose inscription is this? A and then Jesus said what? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's, okay? And, and so there are things that we are to put this in quotation marks, render unto Caesar. 
And I believe that elections and voting uh, are one of those things that we have the opportunity. You know, the Bible very clearly teaches that we may use our rights under civil law. Now, where does the Bible teach that? That we can use our rights under civil law. Very quickly, we got one minute. Acts 16, 35 through 40. Acts 16, 35 through 40. Paul had been arrested in Philippi. He had been beaten in Philippi. He had been thrown in jail in Philippi. There was an earthquake at night. God caused that. Paul was able to teach the Philippian jailer. And the next morning when they came to let him out, what did Paul say? Hey, was it lawful for you to beat a Roman you know, I, I really would have loved to have seen the faces of those Philippian rulers, those leaders of the town. When they figured out, we have messed up. You see, they, they sent some guys to, to let him out. And Paul said, mm-mm-mm, oh, no, no, let them come get us out of jail. What was Paul doing? Being a smart aleck? No, Paul was exercising his right as a Roman. And he did not do it just once. Paul did, does it again in Acts chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. Uh, again, uh, they are about to beat him. Uh, you know, uh, he's in a different place at this time. And, and, and he looks before the beating this time and he says, Is it lawful to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And of course the answer comes back, Oh, can't do that. And that's when he was asked by the proconsul there... Uh, he's, the proconsul said, you know, I bought my freedom. I bought my citizenship with a, uh, with a great sum of money. Paul says, I was born a Roman. He had even more right than that. But Paul's not finished yet. Paul has one other occasion when he uses his citizenship. In Acts 25, verses 11 and 12, they're, about to, they're really about to put him to death. But what does Paul do? Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And so the guy tells him, Festus tells him, says, well, you've appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Paul had that right, not because he was a Jew, but because he was a Roman. He was exercising his citizenship. Last of all, we need to use our right to vote. Here's something that I found in the, the Ninth Avenue from Haleville, their, uh, their bulletin. Uh, somebody wrote this, and I think it may have been Adam Fawn, but he said, there are two ways you can vote for the lottery. And the, the, he was talking specifically about that. One way is by going to the polls and voting yes, and the other is by standing, staying away from the polls, thereby giving more power to those who vote for it. We need to exercise our rights. Even as Christians, we have a right, just like Paul had a right to appeal to Caesar and to use his Roman citizenship uh, to keep from being beaten and to get out of jail. Okay? All right. Gospel meeting next week. Week after that, Brother Rob Whitaker. Many of you may know him from the videos that we watched a while ago in regard to evangelism. And so he will be with us as our first Wednesday night summer series speaker.